Okay, welcome to Retuning Hymns seminar. My first time at a Sovereign Grace uh, conference, and I'm glad to be here. I've wanted to come to this thing for years, and um, I'm glad for the invitation. Uh, I'm also glad that y'all moved to Louisville because I could drive up here. Um, though I'm from the Baltimore area, so I've known about um, folks from Sovereign Grace from years ago. My mom got converted in the charismatic movement through the Episcopal Church in the 70s, and so has long had lots of friends, you know, with sort of common heritage. Um, my work that I do is as a campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship, call it RUF for short. Uh, I work at a school in Nashville called Belmont University, and I've been doing that I'm going into my 19th year of pastoring college students. Before that, I went to a place called Berkeley College of Music, was studying to be a recording engineer, moved to Nashville, did that for a few years before being called into the ministry. And um, Belmont is about half music or music business majors, a lot of music folks there. Of course, being in Nashville, there's a lot of music folks too. Um, but along the way, um, I, I made, I guess it was in 1999, came out in 2000, an album of retuned hymns called Indelible Grace. And we've since went on to make eight CDs and a documentary film. If you want to know more about kind of why Indelible Grace started and where that came from, that documentary film is helpful because you get to hear a lot of the students who were part of that from the beginning, people like Sandra McCracken and Matthew Smith and all these folks get to talk about it in their own words in that documentary. And that documentary is streaming for free in HD on our website, and it's going to be there forever. So um, I'm not going to manufacture more DVDs. They're really expensive to make. So we're just put, we put it up on our website, which is igracemusic.com. So if you're intrigued and you want to hear more about this stuff, I don't know if you know about Indelible Grace, you know about other retuned um, hymns, but it's the idea, and it's not actually a new idea in some ways, of taking an old hymn text and setting a new tune to it. There's a long history of that, but it seemed that kind of in the evangelical world, it wasn't being done very much for, for quite a while, especially once we developed hymn books that had the music and the text together. Uh, in a lot of cases, certain texts and certain tunes got so closely associated that I'll often hear the critique, well, what, you know, what about the original tune for that hymn text? which shows, you know, in a lot of ways, there's not really a, quote, original tune for a lot of these texts. Most hymnals will show you different texts, different tune, different years, and they even have what's called a metrical index in the back so you can mix and match tunes. But for a lot of folks, you know, they, there's a good association with a particular tune and a text, and we never intended to upset people by deconstructing church music. Um, I, you know, I guess, you know... I'm doing this seminar, so I'm assuming you're interested in this, but I thought I should probably start with why would you want to do this anyway? Why would you want to retune a hymn? Don't the hymns have perfectly fine tunes? And there's, of course, lots of things I could say to that. Um, but for me, really what started this whole thing was a pastoral concern, right? So I was a musician, and then I went off to seminary, and then I came back, and I was working with these students, and I began to have very very similar conversation over and over again with these college students, most of whom had been raised in churches. And I would talk to them. They would want to get a cup of coffee, and we'd talk about how they were having a lot of doubts and struggles with their faith, and they were taking that and running to the conclusion that perhaps they weren't Christians at all. Now, maybe they weren't. I think ministering the doctrine of assurance is actually pretty pastorally nuanced. All right, and I'm not going to get into that. That's a whole other seminar, though an important one. But I, I felt that um, as I was talking to these students, I was wondering why did they make that quick leap from doubts and struggles to I must not be a Christian. And I would ask them sometimes, well, have you ever read the Psalms? 
Because it seems to me the Psalms are filled with this sort of thing. And, and I would usually get the answer, no, I haven't read the Psalms very much. And then as I began to talk to them and try to tease out where were they getting this idea uh, that, that, that doubts meant they probably weren't a Christian. As one of my friends who did RUF back at the University of Texas used to say, it began to dawn on him and it began to dawn on me that, that almost every student I was dealing with was trying to get back to a mountaintop experience they had in junior high camp. And, I, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm like working with these students, I'm realizing I'm reading like the letters of John Newton. If you've never read the letters of John Newton, you should really read the letters of John Newton. And he says that, honestly, the, the, the stage of the Christian life for a new believer is God gives you um, sort of an extra dose of feelings. He talks about it as being one who lives on your frames. Now, you know, we sing that hymn probably all the time. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. But I found most students... Most Christians I know don't believe that at all because a frame is an emotional state. And a lot of these students had sort of learned that when you feel bad, you shouldn't project that on God and be like, well, God must be mad at me. But they hadn't learned to not live on their good frames. And the Puritans sometimes talked about an experience they called God's kisses. And it's a very real thing, but if you begin to be dependent upon that, it really is what John Newton would say is a state of immaturity that the state of a maturing Christian was one who was growing deeper because God actually at times removes his presence and draws you to a deeper level of trust. I was finding so many of these students were sort of in that stage of their faith development, and they had no categories for it because they thought maturity was the mountaintop in junior high camp. And John Newton, if he's right, is saying, no, that's the state of immaturity, but God sort of cuts you a break, so to speak, because you don't have any knowledge of the gospel to depend on, so he lets you depend on some feelings, but eventually he wants to draw you deeper into a more solid trust. So I was finding that, and then I was also, as the more I began to talk to these students, I began to realize that the songs they were singing were literally undermining the gospel I was trying to teach them. Because what they were saying in these songs were basically, if I love Jesus, I feel excited about it all the time. The worship experiences tended to start like way up here, and they never came down. And most people were walking into church, maybe something in their life was falling apart, but they felt like there was no opportunity to express that or even to dignify where they were at. And so, it, you know, it was a sort of this interesting situation where I found like, I've got to find better songs for my students to sing. Because the songs that they were singing were lying to them about what the normal Christian life felt like. Now, I know that can be a little harsh, and Bob Coughlin's helped me to say, sorry, t temper your tone a bit. I don't want to say that there are no good songs that do that, but we weren't singing them, and my students weren't singing them in their context. I do think there's been more of those sorts of songs that have been written. You know, I've been doing this now 20 years. So there's more songs that go to those dark places and admit that Christians feel those sorts of things. I remember a couple years ago, one of my students graduated, and as part of that, we had an opportunity for her to give her testimony to the other students in our group. And she gave a testimony that she basically said, look, I asked the Lord that I might grow. If you don't know that text by John Newton, it's a powerful text, and it's on that hymn sing live thing you can download for free. But that text, I asked the Lord that I might grow, she said, literally saved my life. This is a girl who was like the all-star of the church youth group, grew up in a church. Her dad was a pastor. She was on fire for Jesus when she came to college. She, she literally said, I would say to people my freshman year, do you love Jesus? Well, if you don't love Jesus, I can't be your friend because I love Jesus. You know, she was just 
like we would say, gosh, I don't want that girl in my group. I know, but she, from her perspective, she was sold out for Jesus and just wanted everything to be about God. But by her sophomore, junior year, she's not just cutting herself, she's burning herself. She's very self-destructive. She's suicidal. There's, you know, gr- girls in our group that literally have to stay in her bed and sleep with her to make sure she survives the night. And she said how that hymn, I asked the Lord that I might grow, literally saved her life because the first time she came to an RUF event. She actually came to a conference before she ever came to our weekly meeting, which is kind of fascinating. But she said she walked into that meeting. She saw 600 students singing, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And she said for the first time, it was like a lifeline to her to realize that Christians could sing honestly about that kind of turmoil and could actually ask those kinds of questions. And it wasn't just one person. It was 600 students like her, no longer pretending that they were fired up for Jesus all the time. And and for me, I would say what got me going in this sort of thing and what has kept me is that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that there are other songs that can't do that. But for me, I found these hymns have really been so helpful pastorally, particularly in dealing with um, honoring the cry of lament and struggle, being honest about that. That's why Ann Steele's hymns like Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul have been just so important to our college students and to what Indelible Grace has been about because I needed my students. See, my students were feeling that. They just didn't know they were allowed to admit it, and certainly not in church. And I would say the culture is a little different now, right? But I remember when I first ran across that text, Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul, I remember thinking, surely no Christian music company that I know would produce a song like that or offer it for sale. I'd been in a Christian band. I remember we had one song called I Want to Hang My Head and Cry. I had this line, um, I, I pray, Father, forgive me, for I know just what I do. And they wouldn't play it on Christian radio because they're like, who wants to, who wants to say that? Who wants to... It, I was just like, man, if those are the arbiters of of the songs my kids are going to sing, I'm really concerned pastorally. So I started looking for other songs. And I started to find um I started to find some of these old hymns. I had this old hymn book, I had another one or two old hymn books, and I started looking for some of these old songs. So there was that 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 concern for the cry of lament and honoring struggle that I was found missing in so many of the modern songs. But there was also a second thing. I found the gospel wasn't very clear in a lot of the modern songs. Again, there's examples. You can probably all think of good examples, and I'm glad there are good um, counterexamples to what I'm saying. I don't think that hymns are the only good songs. Absolutely. And we don't retune every hymn. And even in our RUF group, from the very beginning, we always sang traditional tunes, new tunes, and other choruses. If I showed you like our little songbook, you'd be like, oh, you're more balanced than you might think if you get an Indelible Grace CD, all right? But I found that the gospel wasn't very clear. It really was, if, if the, now, what used to be anecdotal, I actually know is actually based on some solid evidence. I actually last summer spent a week up at Calvin College at their Institute of Worship with some other church musicians, theologians, hymn scholars, examining the top 250 praise songs of the last 20 years, comparing them to the last, to maybe the top 250 most published hymns, particularly with regard to this issue of moral therapeutic deism. Have you ever heard that phrase? 
right? It's basically what some sociologists are arguing is the functional religion of most people in our culture today. Um, the idea that God basically wants me to ha be happy and healthy. And he's sort of up there somewhere, and we can invoke his presence if we sing, you know, zealously enough or, you know, really, really want it. And if we can convince God that we really, really want his presence, maybe he'll give it to us. It's that kind of thing. It's so far from the gospel, right? But we began to examine these songs, and it was pretty amazing. Like, you may think, well, the gospel's talked about, it's alluded to. It's not unpacked like it is in some of these old hymns. So it was sort of a twofold, kind of two-pronged interest. I wanted to get the gospel more clear, more explicitly unpacked, and I wanted that cry of lament to be um, dignified and voiced. And so we started looking at some of these, these things. I also, along the line, realized that there were really relatively few metaphors, even scriptural metaphors, that were being used in, in a lot of our songs. And I remember actually... Years and years ago, hearing um, Bob Coughlin give a talk where he talked about, you know, if, if this metaphor, like, you know, the Lamb of God is like a hyperlink that takes you to a whole range of biblical development of that image and that idea, awesome. But I was finding that it was basically very few metaphors used over and over and over again. And yet the scriptures were full of all kinds of ideas and range. And, and I really believe that if you only camp out in one or two metaphors, you really end up distorting who God is. So a guy, Peter Matheson, wrote a book, uh, The Moral Imagination of the Reformation. It's, you know, he's not a conservative guy by any means, but he talks in that book about how when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. And right prior to the Reformation, there's one dominant metaphor in the sermons, in the art, in the woodcutting, in all these sorts of things. There's one dominant metaphor for Christ. You know what it is? Christ as judge. People right before the Reformation, if you ask them, what they think of Christ and who he is, he's looking down on them, he's judging them. Is that a true biblical idea? Absolutely. But if that's the sole idea you have, it's a real distortion, isn't it? And at the time when the Reformation begins, what, what Matheson says is in the, in the sermons, in the art, in the songs, in the plays, in all these different places, particularly in the popular culture, you just see an explosion of metaphors. All of a sudden, people are reading the Bible, and they're finding it's filled with all kinds of pictures and images. And in a lot of ways, for me, in the, in the late 20th century, we'd kind of gotten back to just a few metaphors. It probably wasn't Christ as judge, because I will tell you, in those 250 um, praise choruses, I'm not sure there was one, maybe there was one reference to judgment, and hardly any to sin, right? Now, we don't know, maybe in, um, among the use of those kinds of songs, there are words being spoken that fill in the gaps, right? So I don't want to be unfair. I know the performance practice is not just the songs by themselves, disconnected from any context. But I wanted more metaphors. I wanted my students to understand the breadth of Scripture, the story from Genesis to Revelation, and I needed to find some other songs. Well, I can't write any words. I tried that maybe. I wasn't very good at it, but I had these old books because I liked old books. I never thought I'd get to go to seminary, so I thought I'd just have to buy books and read them. And so I started looking at some of these sorts of things and finding some texts that I wanted my students to sing. Now, what you notice here, if you have an old hymnal, basically if you have a hymnal before the Civil War, it won't have the tunes with them. It'll just have the text. And actually, a, a, a collection like this, John Rippon's collection, there's probably half a dozen at most meters used in this entire book. So, which means if you're a congregation, you know, out in the countryside in England, if you know maybe 10 tunes, you can probably sing this whole hymn book. And that's what they would do. 
Now, John Rippon, who put this together, also put together a tune book, but it only includes tunes for the weird metered hymns that he had included in here. Because he realized, okay, I included this hymn, and there's not a good tune that people know. People know a common meter tune. They know a long meter tune. They know a ch short meter tune. And honestly, early on, I would find a text. I would Xerox it off. I would hand it out to my, my Sunday school class say, let's sing this. And we could sing it to Come Thou Fount, or if, if we could sing it to Amazing Grace, or we could sing it to, you know, Just As I Am. We had like a half dozen tunes that we would try and sing these. But eventually I would say, well, why don't somebody put this, try, try their hand at setting this to a tune? I mean, I had all these musicians, all these songwriters. And then I found there were some songbooks that were being reprinted that I could buy and give to people, like uh, a book called Gadsby's Hymns, which is a Reformed Baptist collection. It's kind of a mess of a hymn book. Has anybody looked at Gadsby's? It's a thousand hymn texts with no organization whatsoever. <laughs> like, seriously, they're just jammed in there. But in one way, it's kind of cool because it's kind of like searching for gold. You just start reading that thing at the beginning, and you read it through, and you find something. And you're like, oh, this is good. And like you can see what I would do is I'd just start marking up you know, these hymn books. So the first thing I'd say is you know, to, to, write a, a, to retune a hymn, you've got to find a text. And to find a text, you've probably got to read a lot of hymns. Well, here's the thing. As a pastor, I was glad for my students to read a lot of hymns, even if they didn't come up with any good tunes. I, don't, I guess I went public with that now. But that was sort of my little pastoral agenda. I had all these musicians. I knew that if they were going to try to put a tune to this text, they were going to have to live in that text. And I thought that would be good for their soul anyway. And the church might get a good tune that we could use, right? So I was all about resourcing people and trying to, to influence them that way. So Gadsby's was really important. And then Spurgeon's hymn book. Do you know that Spurgeon made a hymn book? I, I'm going to talk about this, you know, on Saturday, so I won't say much now. But so many of our Reformed preaching heroes spent significant time attending to the songs that people sang. Did you know George Whitfield made a hymn book? Did you know, right? J.C. Ryle. I have J.C. Ryle's hymn book. I knew all these people from reading their books. It took me years to realize that they didn't just preach. <laughs> they actually did other things than just preach. And a lot of it had to do with attending to the songs that their people were singing. So I would give these sorts of things. So um, Spurgeon and, um, and Gatsby were both easy ones, right? So how do we, how do we find a text? So what, what do I look for when I start reading through a hymnal like this, okay? And um, I'm going to talk about where you can find hymnals, where you can find sources of text. That'll be, that'll be point three. But let me just start about with what we do to approach retuning. Okay, and I'd say the first thing is to find a text worth retuning. Here's a couple things that I kind of think about, but I will tell you some of this is more intuitive. And not all the texts that I've retuned do I still think were really great to do. Um, I, you know, you got to understand I'm a pastor, I'm theologically trained, so always I bring that grid with me, right? So I'm going to assume, you know, doctrinally is it true and experientially. In other words, some... Some hymns are sort of written in kind of a flowery language that just doesn't seem true to me. I, I, it, uh, almost any hymn I name is going to get me in trouble with somebody. But I will go on record saying I don't like In the Garden. I don't think it's very helpful if, it's, if I'm thinking that worship is formative and it's modeling for people what the normal Christian life feels like. If I take the Psalter as a standard or the life of Jesus as a standard, In the Garden doesn't seem to match the normal experience, right? Right? Now, I've realized since I work 
with mostly, you know, at least early on at Belmont, it was a Baptist school. So a lot of people, when I would say, man, we need to sing hymns, they were thinking kind of Victorian gospel songs like In the Garden. Um, that's not really, you know, a, a hymn in the way I think of a, of a hymn. You want me to say what I think a hymn is? Would that be helpful? There's, there's sort of a twofold way to think of what distinguishes a hymn. Though in some ways the lines have become more blurred, especially what if you take a hymn and then you put a chorus to it, then it's, is it still a hymn? Hymns don't have choruses. Hymns, um, th- uh, sorry, um, they, they, they structurally, they basically have the same structure every verse, same number of lines, same number of syllables, they follow the same rhyme scheme. And the verses are organized like stanzas, right? So that's, that's structurally. And then as far as the way the, the, it, it handles, the, the way the hymn describes things, uh, hymns tend to develop a theme. And there's different ways they do that. Sometimes they do it chronologically, like here's a truth and here's how it first came to me and then here's how it's worked itself out in my life and then the last verse is always about when we get to heaven, how it'll be true then, right? So that's a typical way. Sometimes there's a Trinitarian um, development. Sometimes there's sort of it'll develop an idea as it goes through a passage, right? But there's usually a development. Whereas the gospel songs... um, will have verses, they tend not to develop the idea as much as say the same thing in different ways, and then there's kind of a chorus that we all go back to. And then there's moder- a lot of modern songs. Now, these days you'll have songs that have a bridge and a verse and a chorus. It's, it's a little difficult, but when I'm talking about hymns, that's what I'm talking about. All right, so here's what I ask first. Does it have a great first line? And what I mean by that is, you know, is it, is it, is it striking? Does it grab me? Is it cliché? Now, when I first started reading hymns, I didn't have a good sense of what was cliche, right? I've read thousands and thousands of hymns now. I have hundreds of hymn books, and I'm mining through them all the time. So I've got a better sense now, oh, that's a striking, original way to say that. One of the great hymn writers, there's really been only two great poets who are also great hymn writers. Anybody know who they are? William Cooper, and there's another one a little more obscure, James Montgomery. James Montgomery wrote... um, Angels from the Realms of Glory, but he also wrote Go to Dark Gethsemane and wrote a really great hymn about prayer. Um, But uh, Montgomery actually goes on record in quite a lot in talking about what makes a good hymn a good hymn. And he says it's it's very difficult to strike this balance, to be able to say something that is immediately understandable. Because when the congregation sings it, you know, if what Paul says in Corinthians is true, and I think it is because I believe the Bible, um, then the people need to be able to say amen to what happens in the worship service. So you don't want to sing poetry that's so opaque that people aren't really sure what it's saying. At the same time, it needs to have enough depth that it repays singing it over and over again without it becoming boring. And then one of the ways that the great hymns do that is by using paradox. It's initially, you get it, what they're saying, but then you're like, but wait, there's depths to that that could never be fully uh, plumbed. A good example for me would be, oh, love incomprehensible. This is a text by Augustus Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages. It says, oh, love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all hath suffered death to set his prisoner free. And all of a sudden, it's like, you see how he's like turned things upside down? You understand what he's saying, but can you ever really get over that and why God would do that? Do you ever get over why is it fitting that the author of our salvation would be made perfect through suffering? Do you ever sort of say, okay, I get that, and then you move on? No, you never get that. 
That's why the hymn writers say things like, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Do you see? Wesley uses that question because questions help you to sit in it and to keep thinking about it. So I look for a great first line, one that is striking, that says something fresh, and yet it still needs to be understandable. And then I keep reading. And I hope that the, that the hymn keeps going and keeps you know, developing the idea well. There are times when I've said, man, this is a great hymn, but it's got a really awkward word here or there. Um, there there's one that we did on our second record called Free Grace that mentioned Manasseh. And I was like, well, you know, Matthew changed that, I think, to... I can't remember who he changed it to, but it was, you know, maybe some character that was, it was easier to sing and it was maybe more recognizable. There are hymns that have really, you know, bad words. I don't mean like bad words, like my kids would think bad words, but there are hymns that are, that has some strange wording, right? And, and, um, you know, it's okay. They're public domain, so you can change them. Uh, try to be poetic if you do it. Um, sometimes hymnal committees are driven more by doctrinal precision and lack of, of a, uh, at least in my tradition, lack of poetic spirit sometimes. But, um, you know, sometimes you have to do that. You're like, man, this is a great hymn. Um, you know, Rock of Ages originally had the line, when my eye strings break in death. That was a good change. <laughs> when my eyes shall close in death. Uh, I guess there's a tendon, maybe there's some doctors here that know that dries up and breaks and then your eyes roll back in your head. All right. It's, I guess, you know, when people died at home, like that was an image that people understood. But it's changed, right? And, and then there's the, the word welkin that was originally in Charles Wesley's Hark the Herald, you know, Hark the Herald Angels. It was that, you know, the welkin. That, you know, it's, there are some changes that have happened that are good ones. So I don't discard a text because I come upon some strange wording. Um, but I keep reading, and I, keep, I hope that it says something in a fresh way. But it's got to start with a great first line, I think. It really does. Is it doctrinally and experientially true? Absolutely. Does it say things in a fresh, non-cliche, evocative way? Yeah, I mean, I try to have a pretty high standard for if I'm going to work to retune this hymn, it needs to be worth the effort. And it needs to be a song that's going to add, I guess, to the church's collection of songs that we sing corporately. In other words, I'm, these days especially, I'm looking for places where there are gaps in the church's songs. So on our last record, I'm like, you know, there's not very many traditional classic hymn texts that deal with social justice. There aren't. There are a lot of modern songs being written by modern hymn writers in more the mainline denominations that would have a very different view of what the gospel is than most of the people here, I suspect. Um, and so there are songs about social justice that I think are weak on the gospel that drives it, but there aren't a lot of classic texts. And it's very interesting because so many of the hymn writers personally were involved in issues of social justice. James Montgomery, who I mentioned, was imprisoned twice by the English government for criticizing government policies that were affecting the poor um, in his newspaper. Well, he wrote a text called Hail to the Lord's Anointed. It's a version of Psalm 2. And so I said, man, that's one of the best classic texts on the tangible physical um, coming of the king and the difference that the kingdom will make on this earth. And so I gave that one to Sandra McCracken. I said, we need to retune this one. And she said, well, I know Welcome Wagon did. I was like, yeah, I can't, we can't really sing that one in our group so well. That was just a judgment call. Maybe that works great in your church and it's the favorite retuned hymn you do. But I said, well, put this to a tune. So that to me was a, an example of there's some gaps. I'm going to go try to find them. And that's what's led me to looking deeper and in more obscure places for hymn texts because everybody knows about Gatsby's now. Everybody knows about Spurgeon. Um, but what about finding not just 
you know, Jesus on my cross have taken, which we're going to sing, I think, on the last day, Henry Light's hymn text. But, you know, actually there's a whole collected poetical works of Henry Light that includes all of his hymns and his whole book uh, of translations of the Psalms that only a few of those things made it into the hymnal. So when you get an old hymnal like this, you're accessing the text after the editor decided which ones to put in here, and sometimes after they edited out some of the verses. I'm trying to even go back beyond that and find you know, the complete works of some of these, because the songs that were included or not included reflected the issues of this day. We might have some different issues in our day that need to be addressed, and there might be some texts out there that would be good for that, but they're just sort of hidden away in more obscure places. Now, not everybody you know, it needs to do that necessarily, but I, I do think it's helpful to sort of try to expand just beyond Great Awakening English hymnody. But my understanding really, you know, when you hold a, a good hymn book in your hand, you actually have probably the most ecumenical, in a good way, um, expression that the body of Christ is bigger than any one people group and any one generation. Um, and, I, and I think it's actually really interesting when you study the history of hymnody to see different theological emphases at different periods in the church's history sometimes balance each other out as you go through the last 2,000 years. And in a hymn book, a good hymn book, you have sort of representative selections from all those different periods. So in our churches, I think sometimes in the Reformed evangelical world, we can be a little myopic sometimes and just kind of read folks, you know, from the Puritans on in the Reformed tradition. I know that's true of me. It's probably true of some of you too. And so I found it helpful to actually try to go outside. Like I think some of the most breathtaking, beautiful, sad um, hymns of suffering come from the German, um, German hymns in the 17th, 16th, 17th centuries. Amazing. And they're also in really interesting meters. So if you're a songwriter, after a while it gets difficult to keep writing in the same couple meters and come up with fresh ideas so for that Wake Thy Slumbering Children record that I gave out to somebody, for that, our fifth record, we dipped a lot into a book by a guy named Philip Schaff, who was church historian, but also um, edited this collection called Christ in Song. And he drew a lot from, he was in the German Reformed Church. Did you even know there was a German Reformed Church? Um, There's a German Reformed Church, and they've been singing hymns since the, the middle of the 17th century. So there's lots and lots of German hymns that are amazing. And, you know, you might have to buy a Lutheran hymnal or you know, a Moravian hymnal to find some of these things, all right? But I'm going to tell you more about where to find those things here in a minute. So that's, uh, is it, does it contribute to an area where there are gaps? And then this question, is it still under copyright? You need to ask that question um, because, you know, I can't tell you how many times people have said, hey, have you ever thought about retuning How Great Thou Art? I say, don't do that. Um, you can probably sing it in your church and get away with it, but you won't be able to record it um, because you've got to get permission to deal with copywritten texts, okay? So um, now, if you write older texts, and you might wonder, well, how do I find out if something's copywritten? If you go to a website called hymnary.org, and I'll tell you more about hymnary here in a second, but hymnary.org is a great resource because they basically are trying to publish online like every hymnal that's ever been produced in North America. That's their goal, what they're trying to do. And a lot of them, they have a lot of them there already. So you can look up a text and you can find a good recent hymnal that has it and trust that the people that put that hymnal together did the proper research to find out if the text is copyright still, right? And there have been a few where we missed on that. There's one in our RUF hymn book, a version of Isaiah 43. You know, when you pass through the waters. Anybody sing that? We never put on a double grace thing, but 
But it took me years and years to figure out that Billy Sprague actually wrote that at a Christian summer camp. And it's under CCLI, but under a different name. So sometimes these songs come to you and you don't know where they came from. But I would just say, try to do your research. I've, I've had several people, and it's actually kind of cool, who, people who've come to me and sent me versions of songs that we wrote a tune 20 years ago, and some kid thinks that that's the traditional tune, and now they've added a chorus to it, which technically, copyright-wise, they're not allowed to do. But I think it's kind of cool that that tune is so sunk into their community that they just think that that's you know, the original tune that's been sung for generations. Um, I don't know. So I, I don't give people a hard time with that, but I do want to warn you, check out the copyright situations. But if you're digging out, you know, text out of an 1807 hymn book, you're going to be safe. Yeah. Um, all right, then how do you approach retuning it? Uh, second, how do you come up with some, some ideas for singable tunes? Now, this is obviously pretty subjective. The first thing I'll say is um, I really encourage people to write tunes without using an instrument. I'm in Nashville. It's a song town. Everybody's a songwriter. And you know what? A lot of people's songs sound alike. And one of the reasons is because once there's only so many chords, there's only so many notes, but once you start kind of strumming a guitar, it sort of pushes you into certain patterns. It really does. And what you've got to understand is it might be really fun for you to sing and play it because maybe the way it interacts with the guitar strum it makes it interesting. But most people are only ever going to sing it. The only way they're going to apprehend your tune is they're going to sing it without any instrument, without, you know, anything except just their voice singing it. And so it would be really helpful if the tune was interesting and singable. And one of the best ways to figure that out is just to write a tune that you did without an instrument. I can totally tell the difference in my own tunes, and I think I can tell the difference in a lot of other people's tunes too, when it started out with a cool chord progression, and then they tried to fit the words in. And when you're talking about retuning hymns, a lot of these have a lot of words, sometimes that are difficult to sing if you try to jam them all together, okay? So here's, what I tr here's my basic thing that I do. I would take a book like this. I would read through it, and I would think in terms of... Um, Oh, what would be a good one here? Come, gracious spirit, heavenly dove. Anybody know this? We're not enough songs about the Holy Spirit, so this would be a good one to retune right here. Um, it's on the, the leadings of the spirit. That fits in with this conference, doesn't it? Um, Come, gracious spirit, heavenly dove, with light and comfort from above. Be thou our guardian, thou our guide, or every thought and step preside. I would just say that out loud. This is literally what I do. I turn on my iPhone. I'd hit record. I would just speak that text out loud over and over again. I'm trying to get into the maybe the proper pace, the proper mood, if I can. I'm trying to get the right kind of diction. There's almost a, there is a rhythm that sort of be, kind of comes out of saying it. And then I would try to turn that into some syllables, some melody. And, and I'm telling you, if you do it that way, you'll come up with tunes that, that fit the ebbs and flows of the way the text reads. And it really will be easier to sing. Uh, now, you might throw in some little curveball at people and make it difficult. But I get, the example I like to give people is Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul. So I, I find that text, text here in Rippon, and I just, I'm just struck by it. That first line just grabs me. Ann Steele does this a lot with her hymns, actually. She regularly will start with some creative name for God, directly address God that way. It's generally not, it's, it's eminently biblical, but it's not said the way the Bible would say it exactly. 
I don't know of a place that's, that puts together dear refuge of my weary soul. But who would doubt that that's not a biblical idea? But she, so there's creativity. She's also expanding kind of our metaphors. And I just read that and I thought, gosh, all of my students, are, they're like singing Alanis Morissette and they're wondering why Christians can't talk honestly about that. I was like, well, Ann Steele, this little you know, lady lived in a Baptist kind of world in rural England 300 years ago. She wrote hymns like Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And they're like, whoa, that's amazing. You know, why can't we sing songs like that? So I would just say that, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. And I, you have to pause after that line. Don't you? I do. I can't just go, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, on whom my fainting hopes to lie. I, it just doesn't come out sing-songy when you speak it and you think about what you're saying. Here's what, you know, might help you to know. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, got converted maybe ninth grade, and for a long time, it was a, a fairly liberal church, for a long time, I was the lay reader, so I got to read the scripture, but I didn't get to say anything about it. And I sort of realized, like, I, just through what I emphasize and how I read it, I'm going to try to communicate what matters. And I think, actually, when you retune a, a, a text, you actually are the first emotional interpreter of that text. And just like you should read the scripture well and think about the reading and think about what you want to emphasize and how you want to communicate it, I think the same thing with, with setting a tune. So, dear refuge of my weary soul, on whom my fainting hopes rely. Right? Like, it puts a pause there. So I started coming up with this tune. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise. Right, so um, there's a sense in which, you know, there's a 2-4 bar in there. If you're musicians, right? If I had been strumming the guitar, it would never have a 2-4 bar. And actually some people get rid of the 2-4 bar because they find it's hard to, to do because, you know, once you like strum, you just want to go like a locomotive. You're going and you just want to keep going. But to me, like, that just does violence to the mood of that text. Like, that, you just don't want to rush by. You just have to put an extra breath in there and slow down, right? Now, there's other t tunes I've written, like, and I, you know, maybe some of you don't know any of these tunes, but there's other tunes, like, I'll give you one example. Sometimes a Light Surprises, which is one that Derek Webb sang on one of our CDs. Like, that was a cool guitar riff that I tried to make a song, and I hate it. Now, some people like it, and they <laughs> sing it, but I hear it, and I go, it's not really singable, and not very many people can figure out how to play the little guitar riff, so they're left with a kind of a boring song without the guitar riff and in a key that's too high for anybody because Derek sings in a key that no one else can sing. Um, <laughs> we always complain about Chris Tomlin, but then, I, you know, Derek's even, even, even higher than that. Okay, well, and I mean Chris Tomlin with regard to the pitch of his key songs, right? That's right. Good. So, um, so that, that's that. Now, um, then try singing melodies fit the way you're speaking it. Right. I'd also say this. It's really helpful to vary your method. So even while I just gave you a method, for some of you that might be a, very, a new method. For others that might be, well, that's how I always do it. Then I would say, well, try something different. Try a different instrument. I generally, you know, get to buy myself one new little toy with every CD we make. That's sort of my little deal with my wife. Let me, I can buy a dobro, or I can buy a banjo, or I can buy something. Because I find new instruments, new sounds can inspire, you know, songs and creativity. And I want to do that. Um, maybe I would try to play some instrument or maybe, you know, for some time I'd try and put together some loops and try and see if that would inspire something. So vary your method, um, I would say. Not everybody's open to that, um, but I think it can be helpful. Even co-writing, maybe. If you've never co-written, you might try that. And then I would say um, analyze and perfect what you've written. And that's the hard one. 
I would say we live in such a perfectionistic culture, it really inhibits creativity. Here's what you need to know. You've got to write a lot of bad songs to write a good one. So just do that. <laughs> What's the big deal? Just do it. Um, the, it's, hard to, it's hard to perfect your songs by yourself. You might need to submit to some other people that can hear things. The thing that you're sure was going to work other people hear it and they're like, yeah, I don't know. Or you try singing it with people and you find that people are consistently stumbling over something. Even though you try to explain to them, you try and sing it for them over and over again. They keep not doing it this way. They keep doing it this way. And you're like, well, there's something about just the logic and the expectations I've set up that I need to respect. This isn't, it isn't working necessarily. Um, you know, you need to check for the range. May, it might work for you, but it wouldn't work for... Um, you know, the other gender to sing it because there's only like one place to put it because the range is so wide where guys and girls could both start, but then the range goes where it doesn't work for both guys and girls, right? So be careful of the range. That means like the lowest to the highest. And then be careful of the rhythm difficulties. Now, I, I do think people can handle syncopation more than a lot of people think. I, I really do. I, I, you can just listen to that hymn sing live record, and we've got 2,000 people singing along with some songs that are pretty syncopated, okay? But I will tell you, the way that they're able to sing along with them is by hearing them, not by trying to read them. Because if you've ever looked at the RUF hymn book when we started writing out the music, it's scary. But listen, Western notation is helpful for some things. It's not as helpful for others. Can we just all say that? It's not. Like when I started trying to transcribe certain things, you find that you're up against a system that works for some kinds of musics and doesn't work as well for others. Um, and so, you know, maybe the way to teach people a retuned hymn, sometimes writing out the music is helpful, and even there's still a shape, even if they're not trying to read the rhythms. But sometimes, you know, the rhythms look scarier than they really are. Paul Westermeyer, who's a great church music um, scholar, I heard him give a seminar years ago at Calvin's Worship Symposium, and he talked about, hymn tunes that tend to last more than a generation and are there some common characteristics and he made the point that syncopation everybody says syncopation nobody can do it um it's not true but the syncopation needs to have some kind of dance like rhythm to it and i would say probably motifs there needs to be kind of mo motif development like you know you can have a rhythm but don't keep sort of throwing curveballs at people uh, honestly sometimes i i hear some tunes where i'm like yeah that's good they've kind of gotten into a into a groove and then they throw a curveball at you. I think that's more disruptive than, than syncopation. Yeah. 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 Right. Do I think you should start? Yeah. Where do you start? Yeah. I, I don't think the way to start is necessarily trying to syncopate an existing melody. It'll probably just confuse people. Probably. Here's what I would say. This is something I learned years ago at Berkeley um, in a pop songwriting class, take a, take a, a hymn that you like, um, put, um, well, this is more for, I guess, for songwriting. I mean, but the idea that you can take music that you like and put words to it and then take those words that you wrote and put new music to it is a good way to actually kind of learn how to write songs. But as far as retuning hymns, I think you just have to dive into it. You just have to find a text you like and you just have to start singing. And then you record it and listen back to it. I, I heard Paul McCartney say one time that he never records any of his ideas, and if he can't remember it the next day, then it wasn't worth singing. I, I don't take that view. I, I find that 
There's some that I really wish I had recorded when I first read it. Sometimes I get an idea the first time I hit on a text. And, and so I want to have a recorder ready there, even if it's not developed yet. And then when it comes time where it feels like we should make a new record, we're pretty subjective. Like, it seems like the time to make a new record. Okay. So I'll sort of go back through, like, hundreds of little ideas, and I'll start kind of sifting through them and say, well, I like this one. I want to work on this. And sometimes I want to work on it because I like the musical idea or I like the text idea. And, you know, sometimes I don't get anywhere. I've got some that I've been working on for 10 years that I'm stuck and they still haven't went anywhere. Sandra gave me, uh, Sandra McCracken gave me her text that she'd written, Rock of Ages, because she was stuck with it. One of the, trying to come up with music, one of the reasons is because her meter was all messed up. Like, you know, it, it, it had a lot of really great ideas, but there were some places where she had extra, extra beats. So I kind of made a, a, some cuts here or there, tried to sort of make it more uniform, and then sent her a, a tune that she liked. Um, I haven't co-written very much, only that way, because I'm kind of a domineering personality. I'm probably not the person you want to sit in a room with and, 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 write, a, and write a tune, maybe. Um, my friend Keith Getty, you know, he, he wants to write, for his last record he told me he wrote 500 tunes from beginning to end before he started putting words to any of them. He's got a very kind of strict method as far as how he works. Different people have different things. But I would just try it. Don't get intimidated by how do you start. Just start. And, um, yeah, just, just do it, right? Um, and then I said here, deal with awkward words and phrases. Like I said, remember before, sometimes you'll find an awkward word. Here's a, a trick. Hymnary.org will have every version of that text that's ever been published in a hymnal. And you probably weren't the first one to discover that that phrasing is awkward. So you can find kind of like every variant reading, so to speak. You know, you can find all the variant readings in these other hymnals on henry.org. Okay? So sometimes that helps. would be like, oh, now that's a good solution to this. Um, I didn't like that word. But here, there's like five other ways that people have tried to get around that and suggestions for other words they've replaced. And, and I think once you do that more, you start to learn ways of either deleting a syllable or adding a syllable because sometimes the hymn writers even great hymn writers like um, charles wesley sometimes their their meter isn't uniform like jesus lover of my soul is a great example it's a great hymn it's interesting we talk about how subjective what hymns people like and don't like john wesley refused to put that in the methodist hymn book that that's one of wesley's best loved hymns but it never was in the methodist hymn book in john wesley's lifetime but the, the, the number of syllables is not the same from stanza to stanza. And the one that's the oddball, the one of those that's not like the others, is the first one. That's particularly troubling because you kind of get set up for what the tune is, the way you sing the first verse, and then the other verses all deviate from that. So sometimes you find that, or you find, man, this is great, but the emphasis is on the wrong syllable, right? And, and sometimes you've got to figure out how can I get around that, and hymnary can help you. All right, so that's um, that. Let's talk about how to find texts. Um, eBay. All right? I hate telling you this, but <laughs> well, here's what I'm hoping, that you don't have as many hymnals as I do, and therefore the ones that you're going to bid on are going to be the ones I already have because the ones I need are going to cost me a lot of money. Okay? That's what I'm hoping. But, you know, you can go to eBay, you can search under antiquarian books, then you can click on religion, and then there's a whole section for hymnals, right? I used to get 
you know, 19th century leather-bound Presbyterian hymnals. There's a, a, a very common one. It was published in 1843. It's the first year the Presbyterian Church authorized a hymn book. Um, you used to be able to get that for 25 bucks regularly. And it's usually more like 50 now. Though I, I scan it from time to time because I love to give that to my students when I do their wedding. I love to give them an old hymnal and write in it. And it used to cost me 25 bucks. Now it's costing me 50 um, so I have to charge more when I do weddings, right? <laughs> um, but you can, you can find these old hymnals there. You can find the old Methodist hymn books. They're probably the most common ones to find. Um, eBay's great. And um, some of them look really pretty, uh, you know, on the shelf. And it's cool. Like, who doesn't like looking through a cool old hymn book? I heard oohs and ahs when I dug out an 1807 hymn book. But I found this in a used bookstore, you know, for $30, Right? Now, I will tell you, used bookstores are difficult places to find hymn books. Sometimes you'll find them, but peop- book dealers don't know what to do with old hymn books. So eBay has just been awesome. Uh, there's also a thing called ABE Books. Do you know about ABE, Advanced Book Exchange? They consolidate all these different used book sellers into one search engine. So that's pretty helpful. The annoying thing now is this category of books called Print on Demand, and so when you search on ABE, you'll search like Ann Steele's hymns, for instance. I just checked it again last night. There's none on there for sale right now. Last time I saw a set of Ann Steele's um, hymns and psalms and spiritual songs was um, $250. I got mine for 60 back when nobody knew who she was. See, that's a good thing. If you discover some hymn writer that you love that people don't know about, then you can get those books before other people figure out that they're worth money. Well, I got those. But you will find like reprints, paperback reprints, this print on demand. You know, they have these machines that can take old public domain text and they can spit out a paperback book. And you can get them on Amazon and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of these old hymnals now have been, you can also get them on Google Book Search. Have you ever used Google Book Search? It's one of those, you have to click on more. When you go to Google, there's like a bunch of different categories of search engine things. And then if you click on more, you'll find that there's Book Search. All these libraries have been scanning their rare books and putting them online. And at least for the time being, you can download them as free PDFs, um, or a lot of them are ebook format. For instance, Princeton Theological Seminary has one of the finest hymnology collections in the world. They have the Lewis Benson hymnology collection. Now, if you want to get serious about studying hymns, Lewis Benson is the man. His book, The English Hymn, is like worth spending the 50 bucks it'll probably cost you to find it used. And I, I have that in my whole list. You know, see, I've got a list of books. It's in there, so you don't, if you're trying to write it down. Lewis Benson, The English Hymn, he basically has this exhaustive history of every recognized hymn book published by a denomination in America up until like the 40s when the book came out, right? Uh, even like the Swedenborgians. Like, is anybody interested in Swedenborgian hymns? You probably don't know what the Swedenborgians are. When I lived in Boston, I lived next door to a Swedenborgian church. Anyway, don't worry about it. You wouldn't want their hymns probably. But, I mean, it's, it's that minute. And here's the cool thing. The index of that book, you can y- look up every hymn book that you'll ever find on eBay probably and look it up in his index and go, oh, this, uh, it's, it's the Christian hymn book. Yeah, it's actually a Unitarian hymn book. Did you know that? They call it the Christian hymn book, but it's a Unitarian book. You'd never know that unless you have a resource like, like Lewis Benson. Um, so that you know, thing will tell you about all kinds of cool books, and then you just start searching titles on Google Book Search, and you'll find all kinds of stuff. Now, I've given you a list of some of my favorite ones to start with, but for instance, you find a hymn writer that you like. Let's say you like, um, do you know this hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted? 
Thomas Kelly, I love, love that hymn. Do you know that Thomas Kelly wrote a whole book of hymns? Most people don't. I doubt there's anybody in here that knows another Thomas Kelly hymn. I don't. But I found on Google Book Search his sacred hymns. And you can download it for free. And then you can read it. You know George Matheson that wrote A Love That Will Not Let Me Go. He wrote 200 other hymns. And you can download it for free. I've never found a copy of that book for sale. And I've been looking for years. Right? And I think I know some good places to look. But you can download it for free as a PDF. So... It's amazing now. It, you know, five years ago, I couldn't have set, told you this. I'd, I'd just say eBay and try and find some old hymn books. But now Google Book Search is amazing. And your local library might have hymn books you don't know about. Um, they really might. Or if you've got a local Christian college or something, you might find some other things. So Google Book Search is awesome. And then a lot of these books are available not just as um, Google Book Search, you know, PDFs that you can download. They're also available print on demand on Amazon. And so, like Thomas Kelly, I could download that thing as a, uh, you know, PDF, but I also, for about 15 bucks, just go to Amazon and look it up, and you'll, it'll come up as a print-on-demand. It'll have sort of some generic kind of paperback cover, and they literally make the book when you buy it. They, like, manufacture it with this machine and send it to you. I kind of like looking through the book. So on some of the ones I found, I can't buy, like, the real book, but I can get the book on demand. Or the print on demand. And then there are these two websites. If we were inside and I had the internet, I would show these to you. But these are awesome. Hymnary.org and Cyberhymnal. Now, how many people have used the Cyberhymnal? And I don't even put the website because it changes around from time to time. In the years I've been using it, it sort of moves around. Um, you have to turn off your speakers <laughs> <laughs> before you go to Cyberhymnal because it's, it's just awful MIDI piano and angelic choir. Now, it is actually helpful to hear the tune if you can endure that, but you don't like it popping out at you when you're not ready for it, which is what happens. If you click on a text, boom, the music just pops up, right? It's this embedded music player. It just pops up whether you want it or not. But Cyber Hymnal is really cool. You can just start looking there, right? And again, remember what I said? I look for a great first line first. So that makes it easy to browse through Cyber Hymnal because I can just look at all the first lines because hymns mostly... Uh, are known by their first line. The first line becomes the title. So I can be like, oh, that's intriguing. That's provocative. What is that? Let me, let me click on that and see the rest of it. And I get to hear a tune, too, to see if I like it. Um, so the Cyber Hymnal is great. The thing about Cyber Hymnal, uh, you know, it's, not, it's like Wikipedia. Like, you can't source it, I guess, probably for research papers because um, who knows where the information comes from. There's a lot of apocryphal you know, stories there about when hymns were written and how they were written and stuff. There's lots of those stories that float around. But they will have any extra verses that exist will be there on Cyber Hymnal. Hymnary.org is a much more scholarly, you know, peer-reviewed website, okay? But um, they'll only have the way the hymn was published in some actual hymn book. So, you know, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, as Rippin printed it, is missing one of the verses that Ann Steele wrote. But Cyber Hymnal will have that extra verse. But uh, Hymnary won't because it never came out in any other hymn books, right? Um, the other cool thing about Hymnary, if you create an account and it's free, you can basically make a virtual library. You can go through every hymn book that you have in your library, and some of you might have a lot of hymn books, right? Um, you, can, you can basically make your own virtual collection because they probably have every hymn book that you have on there. And then you can search all of your hymn books together. Be like, man, I need to find another, like a setting for Come Thou Fount that's in a different key. 
you could look at the index of every one of your hymn books. I'm talking more like church musicians now. Or you could just, if you have that virtual library created on hymnary, you can search all of your hymn books at once. And I'll tell you the other thing that's good about hymnary. If you write a tune, like I've done this before, where I've written a, te- a tune to a particular text, and I like the tune, but I gradually decide I don't really love the text. I thought it was good, but the more I l- r- sing it, the more I'm just not loving it anymore. It's very difficult to search hymn texts by meter. To do it in most hymnals, the metrical index in a hymnal only helps you find the tunes, right? So it's really kind of a two- or three-stage process to get to, okay, what are all the 7777 texts in this hymnal? You've got to look up each of the 77 tunes and then cross-reference. But at hymnary.org, you can search texts by meter. So you can be like, oh, I've come up. Now, this is a text um, that's, that's kind of an unusual text, and I don't like the words. Are there any other, you know, hymns written to this text? One, I, I'll give you an example. I wrote a tune for More Love to Thee, O Christ. You know that? And then I thought, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you love that hymn. I felt like it, it didn't really say that much. Um, and then I went looking. Are there any other hymn texts in that meter? There actually are none. Because it was a poem, I think, that she had written when her child had died. And then she kept it, like, sewed in her dress pocket. And then eventually, like, 30 years later, gave it to her pastor. Um, so I, I ended up putting more love to thee on the record with that text because I couldn't find another. But there have been many times when I've used Henry to help me find a, a text to go with a tune I'd written. Um, how are we doing? We get to go till 345, right? Awesome. Um, yeah, so that, that's what I'd say about those things. Now, I'm not going to go through all these books, but I'll highlight a couple, and then I'll have some time for questions. How about that? Does that sound good? So hymn history and biography. Um, I mentioned Lewis Benson. He has two other books. Well, he's got several other books. But his book, Study of Familiar Hymns, first series and second series, are completely different books. This is, um, he used to do a, a regular column in an old Presbyterian magazine in the early 20th century, and he would do a hymn story. His hymn stories are reliable. Like he's a scholar who knows what he's talking about. Oh, I don't think I finished that story about I got distracted when I was talking about Princeton. The entire Lewis Benson hymn collection has been scanned and is available online. All of his books. And let me tell you, when you read his book, The English Hymn, he, he does this amazing. He's the guy, for instance, that tracked down who K is. Nobody could figure out who K was on uh, How Firm a Foundation because John Rippon, who published it first, just put the letter K. And, and there's lots of different suggestions as to who K was. And, and he helped kind of track that down. The other one is All Hail the Power, Jesus' Name. Again, it was anonymous the first time it was published. Who wrote it? Benson goes to the British Library Museum, finds the only copy of this book of hymns, and it's anonymous, the whole book, but as he reads through the whole thing, he finds there's an acrostic, Perinet, Edward Perinet. There's this acrostic built into one of the hymns that identifies who the writer is. That's the first appearance. Like, he does that kind of crazy stuff. And you'll regularly read in his book, he'll be like, you know, the only known copy of this hymn book is in the author's personal collection. And all that stuff is now at Princeton. And it's all online. And for years, they've had, it, had his collection. For a long time, it was all together. And you could go look at it if you went to visit Princeton, which is a beautiful place to visit, by the way. Um, and then they dispersed it throughout the rest of their library. But now it's all back together again, displayed together. So you might like that, to go see that. Incidentally, you know, you can... Um, can you visit Charles Spurgeon's hymnal, or his uh, hymnal, his uh, library at William Jewell College in Kansas City? Do y'all, what? 
Oh, it's moved now? Was that Memphis, the Midwestern? In Can- oh, it's still in Kansas City, but it moved, yeah. Like, man, that's, wouldn't that be awesome, road trip? When I was in seminary, I think it had, like, toxic mold, and so they were like, you can't look at it. It's being cleaned, and I was like, man. So I still want to go there someday. Somebody invite me to Kansas City so I can go look at those hymns. Because um, his hymn book is really fascinating, Spurgeon. He was, he was, you know, an aficionado of rare books, and there's a lot of hymns that show up in his book that people can't, haven't been able to find anywhere else. Well, and a good one to mention from Sovereign Grace, Before the Throne, God Above, right, is in, is in um, Charles Spurgeon's hymn book. But Charity Lee Bancroft also put together a book called Within the Veil that people have not been able to find, right? But she wrote other hymns, right? But it's in Spurgeon's book, you know. Um, okay, anyway, I'm getting, getting off straight here. If you want the best book, that I think, for understanding some of the lives of the writers, I'm going to point you to this book by Faith Cook. Faith Cook, our hymn writers and their hymns. She doesn't include every hymn writer, but she, in, she includes the biggies in the Reformed evangelical world. She herself is from the Reformed evangelical camp, and so the ones that she puts in this book, she, they're not just like one or two pages. They're about ten pages. So it's substantive without reading a full biography on every person. So it's great, and it's well-written. It's easy to read. It's a fun read. I highly recommend Faith Cook, and it's in a paperback now, so it's easy to afford. Um, I also mentioned this Presbyterian Board of Christian Education handbook to the hymnal. Almost every major hymnal release is accompanied, um, if not right away, within a few years, by a handbook to the hymnal. And most evangelicals don't know about these things. You can get them cheap on eBay. Like this handbook to the hymnal for the Presbyterian Hymnal 1936, it will go through every text and every tune and have a paragraph or two about every one of them. And, it, and it, in the order of the thing. And there's ones for the Methodists and for the Lutherans and for you know, all these hymn books. And generally these hymnal handbooks, uh, especially if you get the older ones, early 20th century, there are a lot of great you know, evangelical solid hymns. And at least it gets you started to know something about them. Um, then there's some other folks here. Turn, uh, if you love Ann Steele, the one at the bottom of the page, Cynthia Alders, the Hymns and Spirituality of Ann Steele is awesome. It's very in-depth, but it's a, it's a great, great book. Um, turn this thing over on the analysis of hymns. I already mentioned Lewis Benson, the English hymn. If you want to start collecting old hymn books, if you want to learn about the history of hymnody, that's a must-have. Um, there also, I'm going to point out the one at the bottom of that section, J.R. Watson's The English Hymn, a critical and historical study. This is the first book really to delve into the hymn as a literary genre. Um, and there's actually a, a, there's a, a, um, a conference that he's going to speak at over in England this fall. I'm not going to be able to go. I wish that would be awesome. Um, there was a guy, John Julian, who put together a thing called Julian's Dictionary of Hymnology at the very end of the 1800s. And it's finally now, um, for the first time in 100 years, being basically updated. Okay? And they're having this conference to kind of announce the release of that. Well, anyway, Watson is an English professor. And what's so great about this book is he'll look, for instance, at Isaac Watts and say, what are the elements of his, of his hymn writing and his style that, that makes him who he is as opposed to what makes Anne Steele like she is, right? So for Isaac Watts, he says, and this is, I think he's right about this, for Isaac Watts, faith is seeing clearly. For Anne Steele, faith is holding on when you can't see clearly. And they actually overlap. They lived about 20 miles from each other. And we know that Ann Steele read Isaac Watts because she mentions seraphic Watts, she calls him, in some of her poems. Um, no evidence if they ever met. 
But she's, so he does When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which is, you know, amazing hymn. Um, but it's more, it's a little more serene. Like When I Survey, like it's over there somewhere. And she does, Anne Steele does a version of it, of that, When I Survey, but it's, you know, the cross is coming at me and compelling me to feel. Like there's just a sort of intensity of language that's different with her. And he'll mention how Anne Steele is always putting um, in parentheses um, and then a exclamation point all over the place in her hymns, right? So it's really cool. It helps you really appreciate these hymn writers and the different elements of their style. Um, so if you're really into this stuff, that's, that's a really great um, book. All right, and then hymnals and sources of texts. You probably just need to know that some of these things exist. And you'll start looking them up on, um, on eBay or Google Book Search, and you'll find them. Horatius Bonar. Horatius Bonar, um, not what my hands have done. Um, you know, what, what's, uh, he's written so many, you know, great ones. Um, he has these hymns of faith and hope. He actually has other books of hymns. But again, they do this thing, first, second, and third series. Those aren't different editions. Those are three completely different books. Um, but you'll be able to find those. I think they're print-on-demand, too. Um, the National Baptist Hymn Books, an important uh, black church resource. It's Charlotte Elliott, who wrote Just As I Am. Do you know she, there's a whole collection of her hymns that you can get. Um, we put one on our new record, Thy Will Be Done, that's a version of you know, that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that I love. And um, so you know, I wouldn't have found that from a hymn book. I had to find that from her collected poems. But you can get that. It's awesome. Gatsby's hymns I mentioned, turn this thing over. Um, if There are some good gospel songs. Like I love um, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. So the best way to get those, the gospel hymns originally came out late 19th century in these individual littler books, like number one, gospel hymns number one, number two, number three, and sometimes you'll find number one, two, and three together, and number one through four together, but the full set is one through six. So look for gospel hymns. Um, number one to six complete and I find that on eBay all the time that one's still probably 25 bucks and there's some great stuff in there, right? Um, Francis Ridley Havergal, William Washam Howe is a hymn that we do in our uh, Indelible Grace record um, Who is this so weak and helpless? That's William Washam Howe wrote that one um, He also wrote for all the saints if I'm not mistaken um, And you can find all of his hymns again. You just needed to know probably with some of these hymn writers uh, this is what I do. I find a hymn text that I love, and I'm like, I wonder if this person wrote more hymns. And you just start looking for it. And more often than not, they did. And more often than not, you can find that incredibly rare book for free and download it. And then you're just going to have just a wealth of, of things to look at, right? So um, I'll give you three other resources. I put this under the topic of nurturing the movement. There's a, a Liturgy Fellowship Facebook group um, that is really worth joining. A lot of great wisdom shared back and forth there, good resources when people produce CDs from their church. Sometimes it's hard to find those projects because they're all kind of independent done, but a lot of times people will post it there. I love that that group. It's a, a pretty broad group theologically and denominationally, but it, I, I find that really helpful. I told you about org, and then there's Indelible Grace. I will tell you, um, we have a thing on there called the RUF Hymn Book. So that was awesome. Calvin College gave us this grant back in 2002 to transcribe all this music we were doing, um, and we put it online. They let us do that, which was great. Um, there were some hymn writers, or some of these modern songs we were doing in RUF that we couldn't put in that because of the their copyrights were owned by Nashville music publishers who couldn't think outside the box, I'm sorry to say. And those hymns have dropped out of use in our circles. 
to me, I'd be like, I'd rather let people download the music for free and let thousands of college students every year have access to this song, but that's me. Um, so I don't mean to be too cynical, but it's just kind of frustrating sometimes when you're trying to work with hymns and you're trying to work with copyright and all these things get difficult. Um, but the, the RUF hymn book is online. You can download all this stuff. We're actually doing a, a big revision of it right now because if you go there today, you'll find that um, the songs from our last CD aren't even on there. That's because I can't update the site the way it is. But we have a whole new revision, which is pretty much finished. It just looks ugly. And as soon as I get that straightened out, I'm going to go live with it. So hopefully before the end of the summer. And that will have all kinds of stuff. And here I'll tell you, like if sometimes people write me and say, hey, can, is, there any, is there a cello part for such and such a song? It'll be no. But if you write one and you'll let me share it, I'll post it on the hymn book for other people to, to use. So I would love to share those resources because some of you all have talents to do arranging. And others would love to access that. And you're probably not going to make much money on it, honestly. I mean, you could try to sell your arrangements. I think better, you know, to, to let us share them with other people that might really benefit. If you have those gifts and you're willing to share them, talk to me. And I would love to have this new hymn book site, a place where I can post those sorts of things. So I'm trying to do that. All right. Thoughts or questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Very few of the songs on the RUF hymn book have piano scores. We are working on that. So the, the grant that gave us money to revise the hymn book, a big part of that was so that we could make piano music for all the original tunes. So uh, I have more piano music that isn't on the site yet because I can't add it. But that's uh, the main impetus behind revising the hymn book was so we could add the piano music. It's still harder than you would think to get people to do that. So, um, you know, I pay like 50 bucks a tune to do a simple piano arrangement. If anybody wants to be part of that, come talk to me. Seriously. Like, I always get people like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Um, and then they do one or two, and then they kind of move on to other things. I don't know if we're not paying enough. That's all I have with this grant. But um, if you have those gifts, um, great. And we're trying to do more. And we're going to focus on the new tunes is what we're going to focus on because, you know, you can find a piano arrangement to come that far. We don't need to duplicate that. Yeah, but we are working on that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, how do I feel about stripping out these and those? The way I deal with it is I think it's helpful to my students to know that the kingdom of God is bigger than people that talk like them and sing like them. So I can see there's a rationale for keeping that because it helps them realize that the kingdom is bigger than just them. And when I'm, see, I'm dealing with college students, right? Because I'm a college pastor. In our college meeting, we only have college students. So they're not benefiting from having the generations even in their church. So that's one of my ways of trying to help them remember that the church is bigger than their little group here. But sometimes they're unnecessarily awkward. I'm not, I don't have any hard and fast rule. Uh, Matthew Smith, who leads the Indelible Grace Touring Band, has been part of this movement from the beginning. He almost always changes them because he's singing them, and he just feels awkward sort of singing in language that's not his own. I, I get that. But I also think there's a, a, a reason to, to sing the these and thou sometimes too. So I just throw that out there. I know a friend of mine, Emily Brink, who edited the Christian Reformed Church last hymnal that they did before this real recent one, told me that they took all the these and thous out of that, and years later she regretted it. Um, sometimes people do it. Like, I think any of those things, if you just follow a hard and fast rule, you probably will make judgments that end up not being very appropriate for a particular situation. So I just say go with your intuition. Um, and the same thing with, you know, other people have other concerns about language. I mean, my thing is, 
you're the one who needs to make sure that what your group is singing is what you believe is true. So I don't, I don't mind, in a sense, I honor those groups that say, we don't believe this theology, we need to change this. Um, I know some of the hymn writers, and you can't do that with modern songs, of course, but you know, some of these songs, people have changed little bits, and I'd rather wish they didn't, you know, but I understand why people would want to do that, and uh, sometimes the these and nows are part of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So when is it time to retune a hymn? When is it time to guard the tune? Hmm. I think, you know, you have to you have to know your people. Like if people in your church buried their grandmother to this tune uh, and you retune it, you're going to get some flack. I've gotten those letters. I don't like to get those letters. I never intended to retune people's favorite hymns, except very rarely. I intentionally changed the tune to Arise, My Soul, Arise. I knew the tune that was a training hymnal. I didn't think it fit the mood very well. That was conscious. So many of the others, I didn't know anybody sang them anymore because we weren't singing them in our church, and I'd found the text in a book with no music. Now I know better how to look into that, and I'm trying to find more obscure text. So I don't think... You have to have a good reason to upset the apple cart if people love a tune. I would say, for me, some of them we retuned because it was really hard to play it on the guitar. Honestly, like we're in a setting where we have guitar and some hand percussion, and that's it. Because uh, we set up in a room and have our little meeting. So some of it was for that reason, right? But I also think what Paul Westermeyer said, it's generally these, these folk tunes that transcend the generations, a lot of the a lot of the tunes, especially you know Victorian tunes, sound very kind of idiomatic within that musical style, and they tend, you know, every musical style has cultural baggage. I guess that's one of the things I'm always trying to help people understand. Um, there, you know, there are. It's not like the what the traditional tune has no cultural baggage, and it's only these new tunes that have cultural baggage. They all do. Um, I find it somewhat ironic that we're kind of in a point in America and in the modern world where texts written by people like Isaac Watts and William Cooper who deliberately talk about writing and toning down their poetry for the, for the level of the poor are associated with tunes which we associate with the upper class. And, and there is some baggage, elitist baggage sometimes. Um, you know, John Newton did not allow Handel's Messiah to be performed in his church. For one, he thought the texts were taken out of context. But for another, he thought the music was too worldly. Now, I'm not going to try and argue that it is other than to say worldliness is very culturally mediated, right? So I, my goal is not preserving tunes for tune's sake. I want people to sing the words. And there's a lot of hymns that have very good serviceable tunes that work in different settings. There's some of them that don't work very well on the instrumentation you might have in your church. So that might be a reason for you to say, well, should we retune it or should we just find another hymn? And those are all judgment calls that pastors should be making with sensitivity. And I would say, hopefully in communion with some other folks. If I have my students go work at a church, I try to get them to form a committee of sorts with older and younger folks so they can talk to each other. Because these church music debates tend to happen where these different groups just talk amongst themselves. And in the blogosphere, it's only gotten worse. Um, so, you know, ask this person why they love that tune and why they would be horrified that you would change it. Um, Hughes Oliphant Old who, do you, any of you guys know Hughes Old? He's quite the authority in Reformed worship. Um, 
really ancient guy. He's at Erskine now. And um, his book, The Patristic Roots of Reformed Worship, is just a magisterial um, book showing how the reformers were trying to get back to early church worship. They weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. Um, anyway, I'm, the first time I met him, um, he comes up and he goes, you're Kevin Twitt. And I was like, oh, I've, I've heard this, that, that kind of beginning before. He said, I want to thank you for rewriting the tune to And Can It Be? Because I've been singing that other tune for 50 years and I'm sick of it. Now that's, <laughs> the, the corresponding story is the first time the Indelible Grace tune for And Can It Be was sung at the Presbyterian Church General Assembly. It was the official, it, it, it was um, the subject of an official protest. Okay, so I got one guy that's glad we rewrote it, and then, you know, somebody else standing up at the denomination wanting to lodge an official protest. So I, you know, part of me is like, I'm just tired of that. I, I, I'm not out. There's so many hymn texts. You know, I would say, why do you want to retune it? I'll just add one more thing to this. Rock of Ages, you know, Rock of Ages. I like that tune. And it brings out part of the emotion that's in that text, but I don't think it exhausts it. I don't think any one piece of music can bring out all the emotional range of a particular text. So there is a sense in which Rock of Ages is this strong, solid kind of image, and that tune brings that out. But James Ward's Rock of Ages cleft for me, it's more of a lullaby. There's a tenderness cleft for me. So, and, and now, of course, the gospel is that transcendence and, and uh, imminence put together, right? I think in a lot of ways that, that's like the heart of worship. You know, who is it that's cleft for you? But who, you know, he's cleft for you, right? So there's one text brings out the rock of ages and the other one brings out the for me in, in a way that I think is, is nice. So I can make arguments for why it would be helpful actually to sing even familiar text to a new tune to help people hear the words again. And some, you know, folks that have sung lots of hymns for years have told me that, that that's been the effect for some of them. For others, they've said, no, 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 I hate that you did this. Mark Knoll, who's a, a church history professor, I tried to get him to come speak at a, at a conference once, and he told me what I thought was a great thing. He said, you know, I really in, appreciate what you all are doing, but I don't like any of the tunes because you retuned all my favorite hymns. I was like, I appreciate that. You don't have to like them, but I'll argue for the, the, the idea because I do think that we need to try to, well, the way I put it is give our, our kids, our students, roots and wings. We want them connected to the tradition, but we want them to add their voice. But I don't want their voice to be the only voice. I don't want their voice to be the only voice even among themselves. So in our REF meetings, we sing four songs. That's all we get to sing. We do two retuned hymns, one traditional tune hymn, and one modern song. That's the, the balance we try to shoot for. Yeah. But understand, I don't have anything else. We don't have any other elements of worship. So I've got to make those songs really count. Yeah. How are we doing? We're out of time. We should be done. Thank you guys for everything, and I'll hang out here if you want to chat about any of this some more.